Hi, welcome to Bookie, which unlock big ideas from world bestsellers in audio, text, and mind map. Please download Bookie at Apple Store or Google Play with more features. Get your free mind snack now. Today we will unlock the book Why We Get Sick, The New Science of Darwinian Medicine. If you were given Genie's Lamp, what would be your three wishes? We believe that most people would save a wish for good health and a long life. For most of us, good health is a priority. There is a Chinese saying that goes health is one, while wealth, status, reputation, family, kinship, love, and others are a string of zeros that follow. This means that without health, other pursuits will instantly become meaningless. We may wonder, since health is so important, why is it that humans at the top of the food chain haven't evolved to have the highest life expectancy in the animal kingdom? Why does rapidly developing modern medicine remain helpless in the face of some diseases? Why do we still have fevers and allergies? The above questions can actually be boiled down to one big question, why do we get sick? Today we will find the answers to the question in this book why we get sick. This book was written by Randolph M. Nessie and George C. Williams. Both are leading figures in the field of evolutionary biology. Nessie is a practicing physician in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Michigan Medical School. He is also the founding director of the Center for Evolution and Medicine at Arizona State University. The other author Williams was a professor emeritus of ecology and evolution at the State University at Stony Brook, New York. As a recipient of the Crawford Prize, he was regarded as one of the most respected American evolutionary biologists. He passed away in 2010. Before we delve deep into the content, let's look at two essential concepts used in the book, proximate explanation and evolutionary explanation. Approximate explanation is the main perspective taken by modern medicine to explain human diseases. It is concerned with the traits that are responsible for an individual's functional impairment, that is how illnesses specifically occur. An evolutionary explanation on the other hand takes a vastly different direction from approximate explanation. As the term suggests, it focuses on the analysis of why humans as a species have a disease from the perspective of human evolution, and why this disease-causing mechanism hasn't been eliminated during human evolution. Let's take heart attacks as an example. The proximate explanation of this disease is that heart attack patients consume fatty foods in great quantities and they carry the genes that predispose them to atherosclerosis. But evolutionary explanations are more concerned with which genes are responsible for causing people to crave for fatty foods, which genes contribute to cholesterol deposition, and why natural selection hasn't eliminated these genes. It is also this evolutionary perspective that this book takes to discuss the human body, disease, aging, and other problems. As modern medicine advances, we now have a lot of knowledge about various diseases. Yet we still find it hard to answer the big question, why do we get sick? If we look at this million-dollar question from an evolutionary perspective, we will find ideas to answer it. As American evolutionary biologist Theodosius Dobjonsky puts it, Nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Well, let's follow both expert scholars to find out exactly why we humans get sick. Part 1, External Factors That Cause Disease Part 2, Internal Factors That Cause Disease Part 3, 
the inseparable relationship between genes and diseases. We shall first discuss the external factors that cause disease. These are the most direct and understandable causes of our illnesses. They can be divided into three groups. The most prominent group is the ever-evolving pathogens. Pathogens are parasites and microbes that cause disease in an organism, of which microbes make up the vast majority. Microbes include bacteria, viruses, and fungi, such as mold, Escherichia coli, and rabies virus. They are widespread in nature, and some of them will invade the human body. At this point, the human body becomes a place for pathogens to survive, that is a host. More than 150 pathogens may infect a person in his or her lifetime. Pathogens and humans are at odds with each other, and their conflicts are inevitable. This fuels the continuous upgrades of their weapons and defenses, like in an arms race. Let's take an example. Perhaps the most remarkable medical advancement of the 20th century was the discovery and use of antibiotics. Antibiotics are toxins produced by mold to fight bacteria such as penicillin, which we are all familiar with. The function of antibiotics is to fight bacterial invasion. Extensive uses of antibiotics have led to such a dramatic reduction in diseases caused by bacterial infections in developed countries, that in 1969 the Surgeon General of the United States felt justified in announcing that it was time to close the book on infectious disease. However, in the face of powerful antibiotics, pathogens don't just sit around and wait for death. In order to survive, they begin to actively upgrade their weapons. As a result, antibiotic-resistant pathogens started to emerge swiftly. Let's take Staphylococcus aureus as an example. Staphylococcus aureus is a bacterium that causes pneumonia, septicemia, and other diseases. In 1941, almost all such bacteria could be killed by penicillin. But just three years later, in 1944, some Staphylococcus strains had already mutated and gained the ability to break down penicillin. To this day, 95% of Staphylococcus strains show some resistance to penicillin. To combat this new strains of Staphylococcus, scientists introduced a new type of antibiotic called ciprofloxacin in 1987. However, by now it is known that 80% of New York City's Staphylococcus strains have already shown resistance to ciprofloxacin. Facing this escalating arms races, we have learned that we need to avoid long-term antibiotic use to prevent antibiotic-resistant pathogens from upgrading. For pathogens, improving their armaments isn't going to be enough. Pathogens can survive in the hosts, but they must also find new hosts before their current hosts die. That requires some transmission tactics. The rhinovirus that causes the common cold for example requires its host to cough or sneeze for transmission. For this, rhinovirus needs to maintain a certain level of virulence. The term virulence refers to the ability of a pathogen to make its host sick. Only rhinoviruses with a certain level of virulence can trigger the host defense mechanism which can help the virus achieve transmission. In order to spread themselves more extensively, pathogens need to learn to control their virulence. For example, suppose you suffer from a bad cold so severely that you have to stay in bed to recover. In this case, the pathogen will most likely not come into contact with a new host. If you just suffer from a mild cold, you can still go to work, shop, and socialize, 
therefore the likelihood of you spreading the pathogens to others is fairly high. As shown in this example, pathogens that have just the right amount of virulence are bound to be more widely spread pathogens, and therefore more likely to survive in the long term. The second group of external factors that causes disease is the ubiquitous and relentless toxins. Don't ever think that toxins are some remote compounds that are only found in things known to be toxic. They are all around us. As an example, apple seeds contain amygdalin, which can be broken down into highly toxic cyanide in the body. And just 50 mg of cyanide or 200 apple seeds can kill an adult. In our daily life, besides apple seeds, the seeds of plums, loquats, peaches, black cherries, and other fruits also contain amygdalin. Upon hearing this, you may question whether these delicious fruits have poisonous seeds. This is the result of natural selection. Plants evolved to bear seeds that contain toxins to keep them from being chewed up by animals, so that they have a chance to continuously disperse and reproduce. Fortunately, our body is equipped with natural defense mechanisms to deal with such natural toxins. Our liver is ready to rid the body of the toxins. Our sensitive nose will also help us detect and avoid these common natural toxins. In fact, the reason why children don't like eating vegetables is because the nose detect plant toxins in strong flavored vegetables such as onions and broccoli. Of course, nowadays we can enjoy our modern low-toxin vegetables, but the natural defense system of children against them remains unchanged. Although evolution has equipped us with mechanisms to deal with natural toxins, we are somewhat at a loss to cope with unnatural toxins or artificial toxins. The colorless odorless pesticide DDT, dichlorodiphenyltrichloroethane is one such example. DDT was once touted for reducing the incidence of malaria in Africa by 90% and increasing the yield per unit of land in the United States by 60%. Furthermore, the Swiss chemist Paul Hermann Muller won the 1948 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his discovery of DDT. It wasn't until 1962 that scientists discovered that the internationally praised DDT is harmful to humans and animals. DDT can damage our liver and kidney, cause skin lesions, and lead to heart muscle damage. It can also cause cancer and birth defects in animals. Despite the increasing number of unnatural toxins in our surroundings, such as dioxin from car exhaust emissions and amalgam, a cheap and durable material used in dental filling, Evolution hasn't caught up to equip the human body with the appropriate detection and detoxification mechanisms. We can only try to avoid these artificial toxins if we are aware of their presence and toxic effect. It is clear that both the ubiquitous natural and artificial toxins are threats to our health. So can we count on the development of modern civilization to counter the ill effect of these toxins? The answer may surprise you. The rapidly developing modern civilization on the contrary poses a significant threat to our health. The rapid development of civilization has indeed facilitated the survival of mankind in various ways. However, it has also invisibly contributed to the spread of diseases. For instance, in the past, people believed that the tuberculosis epidemic was caused by poverty and unhygienic living conditions. But people used to be poorer even before the epidemic, and tuberculosis hadn't been prevalent in those days. Only after the rise of big cities did TB become widespread. 
This is because TB germs can survive indoors for several weeks. The higher density of indoor population in cities made it easier for TB germs to find new hosts. Another example of a disease spread due to our developing civilization is the flu that threatens human health. In the course of globalization, people with flu on international flights will unknowingly spread the flu virus, making the flu a common threat to people all over the world. That concludes Part 1, External Factors That Cause Disease. Let's have a quick recap. There are three major external factors that make us sick. The first is pathogens. They are always evolving and that constantly makes our fights with them increasingly difficult. The second is the ubiquitous natural and unnatural toxins. Evolution hasn't equipped us with adequate mechanisms to deal with them all. The third is the rapid development of human civilization which has increased the rate of pathogens spreading to an unstoppable level. Today we are just sharing limited content. To unlock more key insights of world-class bestseller please download our app. Just search for B-O-O-K-E-Y at Apple Store or Google Play. Get your free mind snack now.